Hello, movie lovers. Welcome home. My name is Amy Hensrling, and you are listening to Watch This List Unplugged. This is uh, my fourth series, which is uh, emphasizing comfort films. I am extremely stoked uh, to have my guest today, the great and powerful Sakana. The one I'm and very only. Stoked to be here. Also, not great and powerful, but I'm happy to be talking to you about this stuff. Hello, Sakana uh, is here for the my podcast one year anniversary, which is today, Yay. September first, is when I debuted debuts, uh, which was my first episode ever with with another uh, incomparable person, Frank Ritz. Uh, and uh, I feel very privileged because when I was thinking this morning about a year ago, I never would have thought that Sakana would be on my pod ever. Uh, and I knew who you were then, too. Uh, so it just uh, feels very serendipitous uh, that you are the person that is marking. And my second female guest. Yes. Like the only like it's it's you and Jetta now. And that's it. Well, so that's, that's very flattering. Um, it's it makes me sound far more interesting and compelling than I am. But I am very happy that I am here for this, and I am extremely delighted to add one other tally to the non male side of the of the board. Yeah, I'm excited to be there. It's a lot also. of male energy, I have to say. Um, and I I found I don't know if you have found this, but what would you say your percentage of followers are like? In terms of how many, how many, what's the ratio? Like guys it's definitely to... very heavily male or male mm -hmm. identifying. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I would say probably, I don't know, 80, 20 or 90, 10. Yeah. yeah. Probably. Yeah. Maybe 80, 20 for me. Yeah. I think you're right. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. it's not, it, it's not your fault that your podcast like reflects, basically exactly reflects that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and nothing against it. I think it's I think it's fantastic, but it's just like when you find someone that you feel kindred with who who is, you're just like, "Oh, hi." You know, it's <laughs> it's almost like you're in a foreign country and someone starts speaking English and you just cling to them like a lifeboat. <laughs> so I don't know if you find well, I guess your name is your name on mm -hmm. Letterbox, so you probably don't have this, but like I have definitely had people just assume that I'm oh. a guy or male identifying yeah. just because like everybody they follow is. And so probably this person must be too, which is, I don't mind at all, but it, it speaks to what you're describing, sort of the really heavy masculine bent of our, of our list. And uh, Sakana is, it could Gender be. Gender neutral. Right? Isn't yeah. it kind of? I feel like, it, and it also, um, I think when I first read it, I thought that you were like Japanese or. Yeah. That you were it is. not. Yeah. Yeah. Like I told you it means fish in Japanese. So it's understandable mm -hmm. that you would think that. In, in fact, I'm just like this old white lady, but my name sounds very interesting, I guess. <laughs> it, it also reminded me of the word katana. Sakana, Sakana, Sakana katana. Which is, is cool. Is, yeah, that sounds really cool. It is a it is a cool sounding handle. I have to say of all the ones that I see. Because there's some random ones, you know, that seem like it was the person's like email address in high school yes. sort of vibe. So, and sure. uh, do people can people like shorten? And I guess sack, right? S a s a k. Yeah, but there's not there's not really another way, is there? Is there anybody who I don't calls know. It anything else? I mean, it's not you know, it's a word that means fish, so you can use it any way you want. Mm. I think you and Ethan are the only people who call me sack, but I sort of like that. I like it, Zach. It's <laughs> it's brevity. We're trying to get to the point. Yeah, you don't have time for that other so the other have two that. syllables. So I kinda, yeah, yeah, yeah. What's that line from Big Lebowski? I can't remember it right now. What? Uh, what? Oh my gosh, I'm blanking out, and this is such a famous line from Big Lebowski. I can't even think of what it would be. I feel like it's I'll about brevity. It. And he's like, oh, "You're yeah. oh yeah." <laughs> It's this when he says like the whole brevity thing, man. The whole brevity, yeah. yeah if you're into the whole brevity thing, there we yes. go. Gosh, I just probably had people screaming at me. Um, That's gonna. Okay. It's got to be only a matter of time before somebody has that as a comfort film for sure. Oh, good point. 
Yeah. That's a great comfort movie. It definitely is. Yeah. Anything that is just like intensely quotable. Mm-hmm. I will say though, for you, that you are the first person that I've talked to about comfort films where your comfort films are also hidden gems. All three of them. Mm. Yours are definitely in the category of like underrated classics as well as being comfortable to you, which I think sort of speaks to you as a person, like your aesthetic, because a lot of people are just like popular movies like that everyone loves and has heard of already. Yeah. And yours, I had only heard of the middle one. I hadn't heard of the other two. Yeah. And something, I mean, it also, I think, depends on when you encounter the stuff and sort of the context in which you encounter the stuff. Mm. Because I think all of mine, I, the the episodes I've listened to, people always have at least like one or two that are sort of childhood things for them, things that they've been watching forever. And like, right. I have movies that are really important to me that I became familiar with in my childhood, but right. that I that I enjoy revisiting, but they are not right now, at least what I turn to for comfort. And something I realized when I was looking at them, when I was going back and looking at when I first saw them, the first two, which are the ones that I've seen the most that are sort of like closest to my heart, I mm-hmm. they're both um, pandemic movies. They're both from 2020 when I first saw them. And I'm sure that that, and the other, as I told you, like a couple other ones I was considering were also things that I sort of first encountered for the first time, like while we were in lockdown. Which is very interesting that that it was like, not only are they comforting, they're not comforting in like a sort of sentimental way, but they're comforting in like you literally needed to be comforted. Yeah. Like, like you literally needed something. Yeah. Like it's that. like you're looking for like some sort of refuge for a little while and they helped me like then. And it's sort of awesome for me that they like continue to provide that for me. And they don't, I don't watch them and think, oh God, we were locked in our houses. It was terrible. You know, I watch them I'm like, ah, oh, this is, this is where I want to be. It's also fantastic that I love that your reviews for these, when I go to you, you had like four. <laughs> uh, like, you, I was like, this just completely takes over my feed when I look up these movies. Yeah. So it's like, you, you are these movies' biggest fan as well, <laughs> which I love. I was like, she literally wrote about this four times. Yeah. Like, four different times. I mean, that's uh, one of. Like, it makes me so, I'm so stoked to get to talk to you about them because it's like, I get to like make people listen to my feelings about them again, like in a different, in in a different medium. Cause yeah, I've done it a lot and I'm sure I probably will not stop anytime soon. Yeah. It's also, I mean, are you a big rewatcher? Like in general? I'm typically not actually that much of a rewatcher just because there's so much stuff to watch that like, I get like, I'm like, oh, I need to use this time for something else, but there's a handful yeah. of things that I return to regularly. Yeah, I am very, very much that way. Like, there are some people who just love to rewatch, yeah. and they'll do it like Frank. He'll do it like six or seven times, sometimes ten times. And I'm like, all right, that's, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, th- my watch list is like looming. I mean, yes. it's just gigantic and growing all the time. Yeah, it's so. very, I mean, I'm sure that like everyone who's listening to this has this exact or has a similar challenge when you're like well i want to watch something new at this time but what if Mm -hmm. it's not good what if i waste those 90 minutes like i know this movie is good so i mean you know maybe i should give this time to something i already know is worth that time and that i love you know like it's such a crapshoot to go and like try something new and and sometimes when you watch something that you've already seen you really are illuminated and you catch things that you that's that's the fun thing about this is like Whenever someone picks a movie that I've seen already, I'm actually really happy that I get to revisit it yeah, and then see something new and then get it to be able to talk to them about it. We also have to mention, Sakana, that one of your comfort films was going to be what? Tell us. Inherent Vice. Inherent Vice. Uh, We decided against it, or should I say you did because I I gave you the choice. But I thought that would be... um, that would have been opening such a can of worms in an interesting way. It's so funny because until you were like, what? Like it didn't occur to me that that was like a weird comfort movie. Like, yeah, I watched it like six times in two months during the pandemic. What's weird about that? (laughs) 
just just it, it, what what was amazing to me was that you were not a um you're not a PTA no not at all not at all person yeah so that was what it was it was it was that you actually love inherent vice yeah. not his filmography as a whole so that's why I felt like it was where I was like hmm how interesting that is. I think I was actually thinking about it because you and I talked about it a little bit and I was trying to figure out why it was something that I found so comforting. And yeah. I think that like, it's a pretty common thread that runs through that and runs through at least two of the three that we're going to talk about is that, you know, I find the central character really compelling. And in particular, mm. the central character's relationships with the people around him, like his relationship in, in, in Heron Vice, his relationship with Bigfoot is like, so beautiful like i find it so 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 affecting and like how well they know each other and how important they are to each other even though you know mm. bigfoot has is like this very unpleasant person to him outwardly you know his big, bigfoot is like in a terrible place but like they have this connection and they have this connection they've had for a really really long time and it just fascinates me like i just i love going there and spending time with like you know this group of people yeah and you said you loved the uh, the vibe, like the yes. the seventies atmosphere. Yeah, I of. told you I read the book. Um, I'm yeah. also not like a big Pynchon head at all. I've read like two Tim Pynchon books, but I love the book, and I thought that the movie like captured that vibe just flawlessly. Right. Yeah. I we will come back to this point because what you just said about uh, he and Bigfoot reminds me of your second film because you. Yeah. That was something that you resonated so much with. Yes. And I find that very interesting. I, I have never really, it was one of your reviews, not all three of them, where you really <laughs> got into it. Mm. And I was, it really changed my perception of it. And just your uh, emphasis is just very intriguing to me. Uh, but we'll get into that. Okay. So <laughs> the first, so there's going to be three comfort films. The first one is Pit Stop. It from 1969, directed by Jack Hill. Mm -hmm. uh, tell me how you sort of stumbled upon this one and then what you find uh, reaches you about it. So um, you and I have talked about this, but sort of I, I was a big movie watcher when I was young. I studied a lot of film in college. I wrote about movies for like work for, for several years, but I sort mm -hmm. of, got away from them. And one of the things during the pandemic that I went back to um, as a source of comfort, as something to occupy my time was, you know, getting into movies again and watching like old movies and sort of exploring stuff that I hadn't seen before. And right. sort of in, in 2020, when we first got locked down, I was like, all right, I'm going to watch as many Rock Hudson movies as I can and as many mm -hmm. Brian Dunleavy movies as I can. And so this I came to because it's Brian Dunleavy's final film. And I was like, oh, well, I got to watch it for him. And I had no idea. Like, I didn't know anything about it. Um, it's like, it was a car movie. I'm not going to have any interest in car movies, you know. Um, but I watched it. I was looking at the my logging. I think I watched it like three times in a week. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the it's first not time very though. long, but still. <laughs> yeah. Um, still. And it's just like, I find it's funny because, I mean, it's about this sort of, very, very small, very minor racing world, car racing. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. It's figure eight racing, which is bananas, and it was a thing that actually existed. Um, but it starts about this guy named Rick Bowman who sort of enters this world and is fascinated by it. And it's about his experience in that world and sort of how he changes and how the people around him change. And, you know, it's nothing to do with my life. <laughs> I know nothing about cars. I, you know, I'm not in that environment in any way, but like, to me, it's the, like, when I think about that movie, it's a ridiculous thing to say, but like, it feels like going home. Like when I feel like out of sorts, when I feel like I need like grounding or something, like I just turn that on. And as soon as the score starts, I'm like, ah, this, this, this is like this, this is a familiar place. This is a place that I'm comfortable. This is a place that like, it's just like a hug for me, even though it's so depressing, like everything is just so grim. But it's just You're, so yeah. reassuring for me to visit it. I, I was going to say, uh, these movies do not, they're not happy. It, well, your last one. The is. last one is, yeah. Um, but it is interesting to me. It's not necessarily, like, you're sort of providing inadvertently your definition of comfort. 
yeah. uh, which is that it doesn't have to be necessarily uh, a good ending or like, it's just that it needs to feel soothing to you in some way, I think, or just yeah. sort of nourishing. And it's and- it's very like, yeah, it's, it's familiar. Like I know these people um, and I find them all completely realistic. Um, mm-hmm. And I find them individually compelling. I find their relationships compelling. Um, and something I was thinking about, especially in the context of the second one is that I think all of the characters in this movie like tell the truth all the time. Yes. Which is unusual, I think. Mm -hmm. And it's especially interesting when it's not the point at all. Like there's no focus on the fact that they're truth tellers or we're not like applauding them for telling the truth. It's just that all of them are at the point in their lives when there's like no point in pretending to be anything they're not. Right. And perhaps I find that's one of the, like the fact that they're, it's so refreshing perhaps to find them being honest about themselves with each other. Um, And I don't want to, we can't like spoil the ending, but I find the ending is like a perfect encapsulation of that. Yes. And the, the scene uh, where like, you're right. I I was kind of struck by this when he first meets, uh, what is her name? Jolene. Yeah. When he first meets her and they're just very, very direct. I always come back to Hal Hartley, but um, any, and sort of Sorkin in a way, I love directness mm-hmm. and just like a, a transparency that cuts yeah. to the core. Like it cuts to the chase. There's no baloney. There's no, and, and um, people just say what's on their mind. It is, it is kind of a cleansing feeling. Like it is relaxing. Yeah. And they're not like just pretend, like they're not good people mm-hmm. um, for right. the most part. And they're not pretending that they are. And I, and I think right. part of it is, that like most of them, Jolene is not old, but most of them are like well past the age that you're supposed to be doing this, right? <laughs> like the main character is played by Richard Davalos, who's like the, he's the good brother in East of Eden, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and this is what, like 15 years later or something. And he's still basically playing some, like he's, he's in a position that someone at that age should be doing, you know, like he's right. just like dirt track car racer and he's like trying to make it, but he's like, you know, 40 years old, 35 years old, whatever, 35, I think. Um, mm. And it's like, there's, there's just no time to waste with like pretending to be a good guy or like trying to have good relationships. Like, no, I got, I got stuff to do here and I'm not, you know, I'm worried about myself and I'm worried about my future and that's going to be my focus. Do you feel like it is sort of a picture of like arrested development in a way, like, like that these people are not growing up? Um, or do you see it as more like a resignation? Like they 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 recognize where where they're at and they're kind of accepting it. Or do you see it as like they're just wanting to to not take on more? Yeah, that's a good question. I I think I don't think resignation is the right word because to me that suggests that like they are accepting that they're not gonna go any further. Right. And I don't think that's at all the case with Rick, with the lead character, at least. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm not even sure it's Arrested Development. Like, I don't think to us it is. Like, looking at right. him, looking at this guy who, like, all he does is drive cars and, like, bang girls and drink sometimes. Like, to us, he's, like, it's immature and he's, he should have grown up more. But to him, like, this is who he is. You know, this is his life. This is sort of what he wants. Right. Um, and I think one of the things that about it that that has come out more as I've seen it more is the character of Hawk, who's sort of his his rival, who's like when we when we first see the track racing, he's like the guy everybody boos. You know, he's he's like the he's the villain, um, but he's like great. He's the best one. And he starts out with this really unpleasant relationship with Rick. He's played by Sid Haig, who's like in a bunch of Jack Hill movies, and he's awesome. Um yeah. and, and it's so fascinating to me that like basically they switch like at first rick is sort of wide-eyed and like oh this is interesting and hawk is a cynical hard one and then by the end of the movie movie hawk has actually grown as a person right like hawk is like apologizes to him and he like can see himself that he has done things that are not good and he's sorry about it and he's like looking at he like sees more of the world now whereas rick isn't become even more narrow in his focus and like 
sees nobody else at all besides people who might be useful to him. Right. So there's something about that that is, because that runs into your second film a little bit too, yeah. where there's just this, it's like an almost palpable loneliness, but it's not self-pity. Yeah. Um, maybe that's the difference is that nobody is wallowing. Or, like, making excuses. They're still going out and they're still passionate. But you, or, like, we, the audience, can see, like, we wish for more for them. Yeah. And we wish that that something would sort of come along and, I don't know, not take them away, uh, but just deepen their happiness, maybe. That's such a good point, the idea of, like, the lack of self-pity. Because I think that that's, like crucial to grant who's the brian delevy character like the guy who sort of sponsors cars um that's crucial oh, to yes. him and, that's crucial to him and rick for sure <clears throat> right like, they don't think there's anything wrong with their lives like exactly their lives are difficult but like this is what they're doing this is what they're supposed to be doing right and i don't know that and they i was gonna say i don't know that they see the limits they must see the limits because they want more but i don't think they see where they are is bad, you know, as negative right. as, as like shameful or below. Like, I think if they were telling people what they did, they'd be completely honest about it. Right. There's no shame about it. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe that's what, that's what these have in common because you're in your second film, the guy has no, there's a lot of self-loathing there. I think, but he also is kind of shameless. Like, well, this is who I, this is me. Yeah. Like, I don't like myself, but like, this is who I am. And there is a certain allure to characters who just aren't whiners or complainers. Yeah. And they it, could be. It's, yeah. It, and it's like, it's painful to watch someone like that who's so self aware um, of like all of their flaws. Whereas in mm -hmm. Pit Stop, like, they're like, flaws? What flaws? Like, <laughs> I mean, or, or if I have flaws, like, who cares? Because they help me do right. what I do. Right. So how do, you, how do you see Pit Stop as a film? As far as if, you're, if we're talking technically, like uh, the cinematography, the direction, do, does anything stand out to you in terms of the look? <sighs> I should have looked this up before. I think it looks incredible. Um, mm -hmm. The cinematographer, I mean, people are going to be screaming at me. There's a, there's a director of like sort of schlocky horror stuff who made like two or three movies. Um, mm -hmm. One of them is about a kidnapping. One of them I think is called like X or something. People will know. People who have seen it know what I'm talking about. Um, people will know. Yeah. We're um, relying but, on but you. When I watched, this is ridiculous because there's no like crucial nouns in this story but when i watched one of those movies i was like damn this looks amazing how is this low budget movie looks so good and i looked it up i was like oh that person was uh, was the cinematographer for pit stop so of course it looked good of course it does to you yes yes i mean i think yes i love the black and white uh-huh and i think that i mean one of my reviews i just posted like a billion screen caps like, it makes me emotional to just think about how the movie looks. Like, there's a scene when Rick is putting his car together and we, like, see him in, like, just a junk, like this, like a junkyard full of cars. And he's, like, against the sky. And it is so beautiful. It's just, like, mm -hmm. it's this, it's poor and it's basic and it's sort of run down. And yet the movie makes it look like they see it, I think. Right. You know, it makes the world just this stunningly beautiful place to be in somehow right and it's not like fan it's not romanticizing reality no not like, at all you called it uh the phrase i love that you used was the beauty of the underneath yeah so it's it is um it's not trying to sort of put like a sheen on something or dress it up and um it might be that lack of artifice that you just yeah. really respond to. And the scene, and like, there's a scene where they go to the desert that is completely unlike everything else. Mm -hmm. But, you know, watching dune buggies in the desert, like the way the desert is shot, I mean, probably it's hard to screw up shooting something like that. But mm. 
it's it's makes such a wonderful contrast to what we've seen before because so much of what we've seen before is sort of heavy on the darkness and heavy on like sort of the urban edges whereas this is very like the sand is so bright and it's so um it's so like viscerally separate from where most of the movie has taken place and i think that that is obviously intentional and i think it's really really striking i mean jack hill wrote it also and i just think that like there's a scene that you will remember if anyone has seen it, maybe they remember there's a weird scene at Grant Willard's shop where he like has his mm-hmm. arm around a random guy, like around his waist. And he's like pointing at a thing and like describing something. And it's, I have no idea what it is for. It's like, so that the phone can <laughs> ring and he can talk to someone on the phone. Like for me, that is the one like flaw in the movie that should not be there. I have no idea why that's there. But if you took out that weird moment it's like for me like it's flawless i just think it's so wonderful yeah i i love your your mind uh the the things that you that stick out to you and the things that you notice you would have been a great editor i think Uh, that's probably i i would have been a great editor to make movies about very specific things that like i think are important Yes, but you could you have the eye for it. Okay, let's say that you have like the way of of looking at it where you're like that's not exactly right, you know, and that's that's a skill for sure. So it probably yeah. will take. Thank you for saying that. It must. It probably takes me watching a movie like at least five or six times before I can be like, oh, maybe that shouldn't oh. be there, which isn't very efficient, yeah. but at least I do notice. You you do get there. Yeah. So yes, pit stop, nineteen sixty nine, Jack Hill. Check it out. Her, her uh, Sakana's second film is also directed, coincidentally, by a person named Jack, Jack Smite. This one is uh, 1966 Harper, which actually, I think I remember, because you were in the process of choosing what you wanted your films to be, and I mm-hmm. remember seeing you log this, and then you very shortly said okay yeah yeah so this is one that you saw again before you even said yeah this is the one i want to do second yeah i was re i rewatched like i had just watched um inherent vice fairly recently so i rewatched this and another one i was considering and i was like oh right it's gotta be harper what do you love about harper because this one i feel like you are very unique in people like it but you have like a uh what do I want to say for this? It's like an affection, but also like a kinship, I feel. Yeah. With it. I think that that's a good word, which is weird because like, it's horrible it's things. Dudes. <laughs> um, Private investigators. I have no idea. I'm, I don't remember why I first watched this. Um, it's based on a book by Ross MacDonald. And I've read, I think, all of Ross McDonald's books, but not for a long time. So I don't remember it specifically, but I might have been drawn to it because of that. Um, mm. And the first time I saw it, I was listening um, recently to your episode with Tristan about the comfort movies. And I think he said that one of the one of the ones on his list, he hated the first time he saw it. Yes. And that was how I felt about this. Mm. I saw it and I was, I think I gave it two stars the first time I watched it. And I was like dude, this guy sucks. Like, why would I spend yeah. time with this awful person? He's so selfish. He's so immature. And then I don't know why, but I watched it again shortly after that. And I was like, oh, he's so selfish and immature. But like, he knows that. And like, the whole point is that he's awful. And like, right. we are experiencing, basically, we're, we're watching him navigate the world. Mm-hmm. And I find, I just find the character just unbelievably fascinating um he's played mm. by paul newman i'm actually not the biggest like i'm not like a big paul newmanaholic but i do like paul newman's flawed characters like i love this i love Slapshot, and one of the reasons i like the sting so much as opposed to yeah. butch and sundance which i'm like very unpopular opinion on not liking that um mm. because like his character in the sting is very very flawed and like he knows that he's flawed, and I think Newman is Henry so, Gondorf. Yes, Newman is so good at he is yeah bringing those characters to life and like making us care about them, and also showing this sort of bone deep sort of disgust with himself. Um, I don't think the character in Slapshot. I actually think the character in Slapshot is surprisingly optimistic, but he is similarly flawed and like aware of his flaws 
Yeah, they uh, there was like a, a review I read about Harper after I saw it and I read yours uh, where somebody was saying that William, William Goldman, who wrote the screenplay and wrote Butch Cassidy, um, uh, among many, many other things that are wonderful, all the president's men, Princess Bride, mm-hmm. um, uh, was that the the thing that you need, everything you need to know about Harper is like in the first frame where it's like he is trying to make coffee and he takes old coffee out of the trash and then tries to reuse it. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like the long goodbye in a way where it's like the way the guy takes care of his cat says so much about him, his character about, about Altman's Marlowe. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think it's very interesting these sort of like visual cues because the first time you meet Henry in the sting. Yes. Yes, exactly. He's like drunk and on the floor and yeah. he's like the great Henry Gondor. Like, <laughs> oh my gosh, I love this thing. Sorry. But yes. Uh, so you're right. You're right on. Paul Newman enjoyed playing these types of guys, even though he was probably, he was trying to get away from his pretty boyness, mm-hmm. you know, like Which, Elizabeth Taylor doing who's afraid. Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. And like to, with, with great success, I think, I mean, like I would argue in both. Hmm. And also, oh, like, yeah, for sure. I mean, not only is he like using old coffee because he's out of coffee, like he's hungover, just like Gondorf. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. he's living in his office. Like he doesn't even have a home. He has this like shitty little office. And he, that's where he lives also. And he like, he, he has like a, he's a PI, but like he does crummy PI jobs. He's like, he's like uh, Mike Hammer. Like he does like, like he's like a bedroom dick, you know, he does like crappy jobs for hardly any pay. And this is just like, this is his life. You know, what we see at the beginning of the movie is like what every morning is like for him. It's it's also his character in the verdict. We should make a list of this. <laughs> I have not seen the verdict, but I will watch it now. <laughs> okay. Please see the verdict. You that it's the same thing over and over again. It's like, how can we get redemption for Paul Newman? I mean, like, the man is constantly in, and that's another one where he lives in his office. Yes, God. I mean, and, it's efficient, I guess, but man. But man, yeah. And then there's that H thing, right? Where he wanted to. It, it was, yes. His name is like Archer in the book, yes. right? And then he wanted it to be Harper because so he could be another was, H. Yeah. Yeah, hombre, HUD, hustler. Another terrible H. I know. And then Harper. Is Harper your favorite Paul Newman film? Oh, like, sure. Is that the one I mean, that... well, okay. This honestly, like this Slapshot and the Sting are movies that, like, I think I give five stars to all of them. Um, okay, but it. I think it just depends on my mood. I feel like more emotional about this one and Slapshot. Like, I have a lot of feelings about Slapshot also. Whereas the Sting is just like, ah, oh, I'm gonna go there and enjoy the music and just like love oh, the periodness so of it. Oh, it's wonderful. So when you first saw Harper, you didn't like it. Okay. Then you came back around and then tell me about, you have to talk about your fascination, obsession, Sakana, with Albert. Oh and, my God. Uh, Albert and Harper's relationship. I think, uh, I think a re- relationship is the apt term. I to- have like extensive headcanon about Albert and Harper, like it's really out of control. But it is. It um, is. Albert it is. In. For people who haven't seen it, he's basically a friend of Harper's. He used mm-hmm. like Harper was a cop. Albert used to be in the DA's office. This is not headcanon. This is a real thing. Um, and now Albert's a lawyer, and Albert is Harper's connection to the job that the movie is about. Trying to find um, Laura McCall's husband. And I, I like, it's like, I can't even express how much I love him. (laughs) Harper is with everybody. He's sort of hard and sarcastic and often like intentionally unpleasant. Like he, he, he is consciously almost always pushing people away, um, Mm -hmm. except for beauty and also except for, uh, Albert and with Albert, like he's just a completely different person. Like the more you watch it, the more you see that he's even like physically different with Albert. Like mm-hmm. when he, he's in Albert's office and he like sits in his chair, but he's like completely physically reacts, relaxed so much that he's like literally sliding out of the chair. 
slumping. And he's, mm-hmm. he, he takes over Albert's desk at one point and he's sort of like lying on the desk. And then later at the house, um, at the Samson house, it's the same thing. Like when, um, what's her name? Who's the girl? You're talking Miranda. About the when girl Miranda comes in. Yeah. And he's like freaking out because Miranda's there and he has a crush on her. And he's like a pretty girl. Um, yeah. And she leaves and Harper is going to drive with her somewhere. And Albert is like, what? You're going? And Harper, Harper's like lying in a chair. Like he can, he's not sitting like a normal human. Like for some reason when he's around Albert, like everything about him changes. He's like a cat almost. It's like he's his pet. Yes. It's, it's so wild. And, and like in the, the, again, I don't want to like spoil the ending, Mm -hmm. but there's a, he has these conversations with Albert that I think are really um, revealing about who he is. Like he, there's a point at the, towards the end when he's like, just don't lie to me, Albert. Lying is for other people. And like for, for a guy who just doesn't care about anyone, for him to like say something that honest to someone like shows great trust, but also like that he cares about him so much. Like he can't handle having Albert be just like everybody else, I think. Right. And there's also a point like right around that conversation about around Miranda, he says something like the bottom is loaded with nice people. Only bastards rise. Yes. And he, this in the context of Albert being like, yeah, I'm nice. And Miranda doesn't notice me because I'm nice. Right. But it's also like, it's like Harper. I don't know if he's trying to give himself a reason for the way he is, you know, like I'm a bastard and therefore maybe I'll rise someday. Or if it's just like, this pithy thing that people always say that like he knows isn't true. Mm. You know, like, like, like it's him sort of angrily mouthing these, these sort of sayings that people sort of toss off. But when you, when you think about it and when you know them as Albert, I I feel like Albert like knows everything about him. Um, when you know them, you know that like there's so much more going on there because it's like he wishes that bastards rose or he wishes that he was a bastard who rose or something. Right. But he's not as bad as maybe he thinks. I don't know. Or, he, or he's not as bad as somebody who's really successful at that. There's yeah. still maybe some sense of decency or some desire for truth that is holding him back from being truly just. Yeah apathetic maybe or just like given up it's it's he definitely has not given up it's like it seems like he wishes that he had given up exactly yeah he wants he wants to but there's still something that's driving him and compelling him to want to solve the mystery which which he talks about a little at the end when he's telling albert that like there were like three or four in the last year there were like three or four really good months and basically he keeps really good months as in like he did work that he cared about and right. he basically says that he keeps going, waiting for those months, waiting for those jobs. And mm-hmm. in the, the sort of the last scene, the conclusion of the movie, it's like we sort of see what he cares about. We see what he's committed to. And what he cares about right. is not truth and justice. What he cares about is Albert. Like what he cares about I is know. his friend. Right. And like, so it's showing his goodness, but it's also showing like he's willing to sacrifice the thing that he works for, you know, in the face of something that like he's, that he cares about as opposed to that he's like, gets paid to do. Now, Sakana, I have to ask you this. Do you, do you think it's a little bit more, if we want to say more than friends here? I mean, okay. Is there, <laughs> to be a little high school about it, uh, you know, are they just friend friends or, you know, like, you know, because there, there is that undertone, I felt, of like, why is he, why doesn't he flirt with all the hot women who are after him? Um, why does he not seem interested? And then, like, even the scenes with Janet Lee, his ex-wife, it's kind of like, I, yeah, there's like, no fire there. Okay. You know that I'm, like, not hesitant to read characters as gay and, like... Mm-hmm. have relationships with people that I like. And I 100% read Harper as a gay character, as like a closet gay man. That's what, I, yeah, I thought so. Um, 
in my canon, Albert's like one of the few people who knows that he's gay and like doesn't care. And mm. I feel like they're not a couple or they're not like they're not physically a couple. I do think emotionally they have this like really intense connection. But mm-hmm. I think I don't know, like I mean, Harper is basically like constantly flirting with beauty with Robert Wagner. Like yeah. all the time. Right. And I don't know in my head, like that's him like trying to find sort of like this like dream good thing for himself. Mm. Um, and with I don't know I for me the thing with Albert is like all emotional. That doesn't mean that it'll always stay that way, but for me that's where it is. Did you think you okay. think you thought that there was more going on, or had been? Yeah, well, and it reminded me of Cat in a Hot Tin Roof too. Mm. Uh, just uh, the way that he would talk about what was it? Didn't he have His somebody? Role? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wasn't his name like Skipper or something? Yeah, it was something really yeah, stupid. Yeah. And, well, and his name was uh, Brick, right? Yes. Brick Pollitt. So is that's just Tennessee Williams, which I'm not even going to get into. <laughs> or I'll be here all day. Um, but yeah, it, uh, that reminded me, Paul Newman often does that sort of vibe mm. where like, I don't know if it's because he just never has on-screen chemistry with a female. Because I feel like this way about even the hustler too, where he's supposedly very in love, mm. but I feel like he always has better chemistry with Redford, or he just—I don't know what it is. Um, but there's something about him that always seems that way anyway to me. So, but Harper really plays it up. It's something that um, this is a tangent that we don't have to go on for very long, but it's something that I—I I only thought of this because someone commented on an old review of mine that reminded me that some, like James Cagney has mm-hmm. this intense connection with other men on screen. And for me, mm-hmm. a lot of it is because he's so attentive to them. and Like present. Yeah. And I don't think all actors are like that with other men. And, and I wonder mm-hmm. if that's part of, I wonder if that's one of the reasons that Newman has such on-screen connections with, that Newman's characters have such on-screen connections with, with other male characters is because he has that same like presentness and that same like intensity of attention which yes. we often associate only with sort of heterosexual interactions. Right. Cause James Spader has that too. Mm. I, I, I love that about him. He, he is like intensely present and it doesn't matter who the person yeah. is. He's like fully there and fully listening and just, uh, yeah. So you're right. I think maybe that's what it is, but it also is just sort of an ease yeah. about it. Like, that there's just no discrimination or just no discomfort at all. And and I think that like in Harper, it's intensified by the screenplay. Like mm. you're exactly right. Like Miranda is crying so hard to come on to him. And he like, yes, he basically makes like, fun. Whatever. He basically mocks her. You know, he's like, Oh, you, you so want to get hot. with me? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, and he yeah. like, yeah. Um, and with his wife, something that I mm. only noticed this time is when he goes to her and he's like, I need help. I need comfort, you know, and they have their sort of last, last hurrah. Like that's one of the few times, maybe it's not, maybe it's only with women. Like that's actively cruel. I know. Everything about that is like intentionally like mean with forethought. Like it is awful. And, but she knows it. I mean, she's, she's somewhat aware that she, that she's like, you know he's like this he's a jerk yeah it's like she knows who he is and he knows that she'll give in and he he does it to her again and it just it like Mm -hmm. it it almost turns your stomach like i love this character and i love how flawed he is but for me that's like by far his worst moment because that's somebody Mm -hmm. that he's that he cares about and like he's in a really dark place and it's like something that i that i've written about i think several times but like he he wants everyone else to think that he's as awful as he knows he is right and especially women and i and i feel like that's a situation in which he's really low and he's had a really rough like an unbelievably out of control night with like work and physical pain and awful stuff and it's like he goes there and he like doubles down 
on making that impression on this woman that he's still married to. And it's just, right. it's like, for me, that scene is like, oh, like, he's not a good person. He's a person who has good right. moments, but like, that that's not a good person. That, that's a complicated, really, really flawed guy who cares about a few people and with them, he can, he can be good. Right. But he himself at his core is not. It doesn't, I don't know, that scene like really got me this time, like how mean it is and how like, like thought thoughtfully mean it is mm. you know he knows exactly what buttons to push he goes there he keeps pushing and he keeps pushing because he knows where it's going to end up and he knows he's going to leave in the morning and he knows she's going to be like all happy that he's there it's just awful yeah i i think that it almost makes the ending more i don't know it's like it's more cathartic mm. because you feel like he deserves it ah. like whatever happens it's like yeah, dude. I mean, you're kind of lost. Yeah. And that was the feeling I got from Pit Stop too. Yeah. Just the lostness, the aimlessness, uh, but but still searching though, still wanting, but it, they are still sort of meandering. And actually, that's a great transition to your last one. I, your last one is Irony of Fate or Enjoy Your Bath from 1975. I'm not going to butcher the Russian name. I'll let you say it, Sakana. Eldar Razanov, I think, is close. Razanov. Razanov. How I want to. Say. Uh, yeah, because these people are actually lost. Yes. I mean, literally, <laughs> they literally. <laughs> I was like, speaking of speaking of lostness, uh, they literally get lost. So this one is a completely different vibe from the first two. Really, really fun, sort of a romp rom com. Uh, that is uh, a Soviet film, right? Which is something that you love. Yes. Like, yes. Um, but tell me, tell me uh, how you stumbled upon this and then how would you describe this movie to someone who's never seen it? I know I've been like, I have so much to say about these movies, but like, I'm so interested in hearing your thoughts on this one since it's something that you weren't familiar okay. with at all. Um, yeah. I found it because I did sometime... In 2022, I guess, maybe at the beginning of the, wait, I don't know when I did it, but I did a project of watching Eastern films from Eastern Bloc nations sort of during the mm -hmm. Soviet era. Um, and this mm -hmm. is one of them. And the, the director made a bunch of sort of very beloved romances, usually. Um, and this one is, was originally not. There actually a bunch of my favorite Soviet films originate on TV. It's like two part television films, right? Um, right, and it feels kind of TV or like stage, yeah, sort of. And yeah. and it was massively, massively popular, and it was like cut and released in the theater because so many people wanted to see it because they hadn't seen it on TV. And it's now in like in Russia and in many of the former Soviet republics. It's it's like a tradition to watch it on New Year's Eve. And, right, of course. I felt like I, yeah. I wish I had watched it. Yeah, and I mean, so, like, just knowing all that stuff about it, I was like, okay, well, this is on my list. I have to try it. And as you said, it's really different from all this other stuff. And it's not, like, I, mm -hmm. I mentioned this in a review recently. O not often. There, a lot of romances, like, really don't work for me. And mm. part of that is... Maybe because I'm arrow ace, you know, like I don't connect with the, especially with like the sort of romantic element. Um, as an aromantic person, I'm like, that doesn't, I don't, I have no idea. Like I don't, I can't identify with those desires. Okay. Um, but for me, like the romance in this, like it's totally works. And, and I think, I think the reason that it works so well for me is because of like how, like they fall in love very quickly, which is usually annoying, mm -hmm. but they have to work so hard to get there. And we see, it's just beautifully written and beautifully acted. I think we see so much of their relationship and so much of them as people and the way they change and how they look at and sort of and like literally look at how they look at one another, how they approach one another, what they reveal about themselves, what they won't reveal, like when they draw back, when they're feeling more emotional. That like, for me, 
the fact that they fall in love is completely convincing because of like all of the like labor that they've had to put in to sort of find a way to be together, to find a way to be comfortable with like admitting that they love one another. And there, this is a really, so basically it's kind of, kind of like a comedy of errors where, um, and there's all these shenanigans and hijinks that uh, at the beginning, it kind of reminded me of like the before trilogy. Like it reminded me of like before sunrise and how they met, um, just like the randomness, uh, and sort of the meet cute part of it. And, and the meet cute uh, is that he, it gets drunk and gets put on a plane by his friends and he goes to his address, except is he, are they, in, are they in Leningrad? Stalingrad? Where are they? Yeah, it's Leningrad. It's Leningrad. And so he, he lives in Moscow, Moscow, but he's in Leningrad. Mm-hmm. He doesn't know he's in Leningrad. So he just goes to his house because all of these Soviet cities are the same. And like this, the addresses are the same and the, and the buildings are the same. So he just goes to his house, goes to his apartment building, goes to his apartment. And he falls in bed. And it, there's a woman is like, what are you doing in my apartment? <laughs> it's almost like a... <clears throat> It reminds me a little bit of Billy Wilder, too, like that kind of setup or like a screwball Cause it, comedy. Yeah, it's so silly. It's so silly, and a lot of it, it, it the, when they meet, it's just confusion. It's just pure utter chaos and confusion. Like, what are you doing here? And he's still, he's still hung over yes. and like not there, and he doesn't know who she is or what she's talking about. And like, why did you change my apartment? Where'd you put my stuff? Where's my mom? And so there's this whole thing of like just trying to figure out what the heck is going on. And then uh, you're right. They go through so many stages of liking each other to not to maybe, okay, I kind of do. And then it dips. And then there's all these circumstances. So it's it's heavily like situational. And I would say, wouldn't you? Yeah. Like, it's heavily de- reactive. Yeah. and 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 also like, yeah, there's ridiculous things happening all the time. Yes. But in spite of that, everything that they go through, all of the shifts in their relationship, none of them to me seem like they happened because someone wrote them down. To me, all of them are entirely convincing in the mm-hmm. moment. Right. Like, I just think like it's so, it's just, it, it's like, uh, it's like, it's like note perfect in every way for me both the performances and the writing of those characters and how they feel about one another. I just think it, it, when I was rewatching part of it last night um, and it was just like, you know, when one is in the background and there's other people there and like the way they look at each other, the way they see each other, like you can see in the performances, what emotions they're feeling in that second. And all of it just, to me, it's so logical, even though it's ridiculous which mm-hmm. I think is like a very unusual thing to see. It's a, it's an unusual way for a movie to succeed, at least with me. Right. Like it, it may, it makes sense within itself, even though it's absurd yeah. and it's very unlikely that it would occur, Yeah, but within its own framework, it makes perfect sense. Absolutely. Yeah. Well said. And just has a logic to it. Yeah. Yeah. Because even the the side characters, you were telling me when when I was watching it last night, you were like, "Oh, I love her boyfriend." Oh my god! Um, I was like, "Sakana is such a fan of supporting." You remind me of Jenna in that way that you guys just love like supporting characters and actors. Um, but that's a that's another thing that I think you just dig about it. It's just like everyone involved, not just the main romance. The the the, the guy who is her like sort of buffoonish the buffoonish sort of boyfriend slash almost fiance of the female lead Mm -hmm. is played by yuri Mm -hmm. yakolov who's one of my two favorite soviet actors and Mm -hmm. i I genuinely think he's a genius like he can do anything he's been in like ridiculous over-the-top comedies he was in he played Mm -hmm. the lead character in this awesome soviet adaptation of the idiot like that was really early in his career like he's in um, Anna Karenina. He plays Anna's brother in Anna Karenina. Like he can do literally anything and do it incredibly well. And I think here, again, the screenplay is part of the success of it. But I, like, I genuinely think it's beautiful. Like he is, he is awful. He is, um, he's very socially awkward. He's older than she is. He is, um, <laughs> he's uncomfortable all the time. 
he's freaking out about the fact that there's this man in her apartment, not unreasonably. He's like, you know his name? What is going on? Why is he right. here? Um, right. And he, why is he here? He, and then like, why is he still here? And he keeps leaving and coming back and it's ridiculous. Uh, yeah. But in the end, like he's granted this degree of humanity, which I don't think that kind of character is guaranteed. Would normally. Yes. Yeah. And, and like mm-hmm. his last scene, he's hammered. Like he doesn't drink. He's hammered. He's taking a shower in all of his clothes. They're like, please don't do that. You're going to freeze to death when you go outside. Like, this is a terrible idea. But in that scene, he says things that are true and that the movie acknowledges, the characters in the movie acknowledge that are true. Right. And I, I just, I find that very touching. And I love that when he leaves for the last time, her mom comes in and she was like, why would you hurt such a good man? I was like, oh, mm. like, oh. yes, in spite of all of his buffoonery, in spite of the fact that the movie is making fun of him, in spite of the fact that the male lead, like, hates him and is constantly mocking him as, like, like, like speaking of not good people, like, he's not, a, he's not, like, a necessarily a good person. He's really nasty no, about so, it, I believe. No, Sakana, so this is your through line. <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> Um, but in spite of all I'm that, glad you're realizing these things yourself. The, the last that's, that's, line on him is that, like, just very frank and very plain. You know, he was a good man, and you hurt him. Mm-hmm. And, and like, movies don't usually do that for that kind of character. I don't think. And I think it's kind of reflective of the the female lead in a way, yeah. because it's like she he's better off. Yes. Like if if she would be if she wants the jerk or the guy that's kind of not not great, yeah. then okay, that's true. Here you go. You know what I mean? Yes. Like we kind of want him to to have better. I like that. Yes, I will. I will. I will uh, continue to think that he goes out and doesn't freeze to death and, and finds a nice girl <laughs> and finds a nice girl yes. who is not so so wishy washy. Yeah. Um. Because there there was a line like that where. She was on the phone with the main character's fiance person, and yeah, and she was like, uh, "It was a good, really good line about that. Uh, someday he'll leave you at the last moment too." Yes. So, so it's also like you know, if you're going to if you're going to uh, start something in this fashion, yeah, it could happen to you. Like, don't think that you are like above. Yeah. So there's a lot going on. The, the script is really, really smart. It, oddly enough, reminded me of the Decalogue. I don't know if you've seen that. Okay. Um, that's another thing where there's just a lot of random things that happen, and the, the, the series is basically how people react mm. to s- different situations. Those are, like, moral, yeah. you know, morally compromising ones, whereas this one is just sort of, like, how you th- it makes you think about how you would react, but it's not necessarily that like something is life or death stakes. Yeah. But um, I did like how Irony of Fate has this very clear, like almost like the stages of grief, except the stages of young love. Yeah. Let's say that's a really good way of looking and, at it. Yeah. Was it was it something? Since I sort of know what you thought about the other two, just from reading your like capsule reviews. What was mm-hmm. the experience of this one like for you since it's so different? I really, really enjoyed it. I liked how long it was because I felt like it was able to build kind of like um, happy hour and drive my car. Mm-hmm. That sort of like you need this block of time to really become familiar, have their cadence and the way they speak and everything be very realistic. I told you also I really like the singing. Yeah. They there is the there are these random scenes where they just start singing. Um which you said was uh emblematic of those films, right? Like people would just start. It's not in in my like I'm not an expert at all, but in my experience it's pretty common in I would almost say eastern is this probably not fair. There are a lot of Soviet films in which there is a scene in which there's a party or there's a group of people and someone picks up a guitar and sings and like you listen to the whole song. Yep. And and here I think we talked about this a little before, but it's very intimate, it's very personal. Um I think mm-hmm. they both ask her to sing, don't they? Yes. And and 
you know, her singing style is very uh, tentative, sort of, and she sings a very emotional song. Um, and then when he sings, it's very, he's very much like on stage. Yeah, and it's like a, flirty. Yeah, it's like a, it's, an, it's a much catchier song. And it's like very much like outwardly performative. And, it, and, I, and it's right. very, there, it's illustrative of who they are as characters. Mm-hmm. And I, like, I think it helps advance the story. It's not like the story stops while they sing. It, it, it like helps us get to know them better. And the way they react to one another, I think, is also advances the story. So what do you fi- what would you say is comforting about it for you? What do you find comforting in Irony of Faith? <laughs> I like there there's a there's a certain feel for me that these Soviet TV films have. And mm-hmm. um I love I, like a handful of them I really really love. Um this is maybe the only one that isn't fundamentally depressing, at least for me. <laughs> yes. Um, so I, I like, I like just sort of being able to go there and see this relationship develop. And I like that mm-hmm. it gives us a very sweet, happy ending, but it's a very sweet, happy ending that is disarmed by what you described about like, is this really going to last? Um, right. and also by the fact that his friends are there and his friends are like, think that he's his fiance, that she is his old fiance. And they're like, do you have any idea what's going on? Like, it's like, it's the, the happy ending is very sweet and like earned, but also it's undermined. The movie undermines it as it's being, as it's, it's sort like of madcap. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. so great. And, and also like, I just love watching Yuri Yakolev. I, I love watching him as a character. I love how like, he's just miserable. And he's so uncomfortable, and I just love I just love watching him play, play that role. I think I could just watch it. I could watch like a supercut of just Ippolit. You know, I it, w- it would make me so happy. You're you're it is so funny. It's like it's almost disturbing. If I if I didn't know you at all, I'd be like, listen, maybe you should look into this. <laughs> but you really do enjoy the sort of people going through the ringer and like <laughs> like going through the ringer and like them being i don't know like going through the ringer but there being like some sort of emotional like realness to it or like a core to it i don't know like like, there's Uh something to hold on to this not just like suffering but there's like you know there's like there's like a person in there who like is better than all of this and he's better than all of these people you know like Mm. There, there's a good man inside of that and i and I, I like that the movie finds that but i also think the performance is just brilliant in in like how slowly he reveals that and the way that he sort of he he embodies the character so beautifully i think so maybe this is sort of it, uh it reminds me of like metamorphosis or like a like a caterpillar becoming a butterfly like you enjoy but it's like Someone. it's like a it's like a a butterfly, but like a busted ass butterfly, you know, like, right? But like coming into your own, though, yeah. you enjoy watching the process of someone sort of evolving and then transcending their initial state, maybe. Yeah, I think that that's I think that's true, and and I think fundamentally, what I like, it's almost always male characters, are mm-hmm. people yeah. who like know that they're intensely flawed but are trying either to get better or trying not to screw stuff up more (laughs) like i like i find that very very compelling like the the self-awareness but also the like wrestling with yourself and wrestling with your place in the world and trying to trying to figure out how to get through it in a way that is minimally destructive (laughs) Right, which is not exactly the same as like people who are like intentionally self-improving, but it perhaps it's just this uh you have such a fascination and and draw to realism. So maybe it's because the other stuff just seems phony to you if it's too if it's too much. It could be. Like you know, it, it, but if it's like if he, they can just improve a little bit, if they can just be a little bit better. Yeah. Um then that's something you identify with. And that doesn't mean I don't like those other things, but 
I, mm. they're not going to be things that I return to and things that I find, you know, oddly comforting. Exactly. Yes. Mm. And I do like, for me, I, have, I'm, I think I only saw this for the first time last year. Um, but mm -hmm. I immediately was like, okay, I'm watching this every new year's Eve now. And so it's like, it's, it's a, my friend Emily and I, for a long time, like in high school and then in college, when we were home, we would watch guys and dolls every new year's Eve. So this is my, this is my new new year's Eve movie. You, and it's new, like, I like, I like getting year's to go know that this is where I'm going to be hanging out on new year's. Like it's very, it's comforting. Yeah. And, and it would, it's a good way to usher in the new year because it ends well. Yes. And it's like, yeah, it, and, and it's a struggle, but there's this little bit of happiness, at least for a while at the end. <sighs> okay. We're going to end there. I'm going to, I'm going to give you guys the titles again. Please watch them all for Sakana. Uh, they are Pit Stop, Harper, An Irony of Fate, comma, or Enjoy Your Bath, which you will understand the second part when you see it. Uh, this was a delight and an honor to have you, Sakana. I hope that you had a good time. And uh, I really enjoyed watching these movies. Uh, thank you for being on for my one year. And uh, what a very fitting uh, movie because these also, they do speak to me in a sort of like very honest and transparent way which is what I'm always after just in general. Well, thank you so. so, so much for watching these and for like letting me talk to you about these things that I love for such a long time. I'm delighted that I got to be on. Thank you for, and thank you for doing this. I mean, you and I have talked about it, but I love <laughs> that you're sort of the way you are consciously creating a community about movies and about loving movies. I think it's really, it's something from which we all get to benefit. So thank you for doing that. So on that note, we'll see you at the movies.